All right, good morning. Glad each and every one of you are here with us this morning. Nice to see some visitors with us, and great to see Andrew and Danielle and little one with us this morning, so we're excited. Um, God is good, and it's a wonderful day to be together. Um, we're going to take a break from our normal uh, study. We're going through the books of First and Second Corinthians, and we're in Second Corinthians um, currently, but we're taking a break from that as we're going to focus in on the resurrection. Now, of course, for us, um, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, um, but today uh, is a day of Easter that um, we kind of take a little bit of extra time and, and focus, and even as we uh, sang this morning, uh, songs about Jesus going to the cross for us and the fact that he has risen from the dead, and so that is our focus uh, for this morning. So let's go ahead again and pray, um, and then we'll be mostly in John chapter 20 this morning. Uh, So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your many blessings to us, God. We thank you again for the privilege to be here, to remember um, all that you've done for us, God, your great love poured out for us, that you sent your son Jesus uh, to the cross on our behalf to pay for our sins. And Jesus, we're thankful that the grave could not hold you, but that you are a risen Savior, and that you are our Savior and our King. In your name, Jesus, uh, we, we love you and we praise you. Amen. All right. And so again, you know, if we're going to have a resurrection, to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. And so that brings us to that question, you know, why did Jesus come, you know, to the earth? Why did he, you know, die on a Roman cross, um, what was the purpose of all of this? And Jesus himself gives the reason, gives the answer for that. In Mark ten forty five. he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the purpose of Jesus' coming was to die. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to pay a debt. Um, and so that answers, you know, causes some more questions, you know, what debt, what ransom, what is this all about? Uh, And so when we go back to the book of Genesis, we see, you know, God creating the universe, we see God creating, you know, human beings, um, Adam and Eve, um, and putting them into the garden, you know, they were just two people, so he gave them a small territory to kind of take care of, he didn't say you're responsible for the whole earth. Uh, but he gave them just a small territory, and in that, he gave them everything that they needed um, to survive, and he put all these trees there. But from the beginning, God's plan was to have a people who would you know, worship him because they were in relationship with him and because they desired to worship him. And so in order to have that um, reality, there has to be some sort of, of choice to make, some sort of decision to make of either to you know, worship God and to follow him or, you know, to reject him. And so God put a tree in that garden called, you know, tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil and said of every other tree in the garden, you can, you know, you can freely eat, but just this one don't do. And so then we know the, how the story goes with the fallen angel, um, which comes in the form of the serpent and, you know, tempts um, Eve and she takes it. And her husband, Adam, is right there, and he takes it, you know, with her. Um, And Adam, you know, was the responsible one because it was Adam who had received the instruction not to take it. 
and he's right there and, and kind of, you know, just watches and participates in the whole thing. And so in it, he plunges the whole human race into sin. God, in his judgment, though, also, you know, he promises that there's going to be, you know, hope. That there's going to be um, a salvation to come. But that there are consequences for sin. And, and, you know, humans at that point are dead. Meaning that they are separated from God. They are outside of relationship with God. And so, you know, even in in God's grace, he cast them out of the garden because he says, you know, there was another tree in that garden, the tree of life. And so, you know, we could think about the potential consequences being in sin and then taking the tree of life. It would be, you know, humanity would be like perpetually in sin. Just always and always. And so there's sin away from that and from that potential uh, you know, devastation, devastating state to be in. And so then we experience, you know, death in, in many forms. You know, we have that separation from God, but, but then we also have the human body breaking down and decaying. And so we have the separation of the body from the spirit. Because what we need to understand about us as human beings, first and foremost, we are more than flesh and bones. We are spiritual creatures. Um, that God made us unique from the rest of his creation and that when he created, and think about when he created Adam and he breathed life into him. Genesis 2-7, he breathes life into Adam. It makes him unique. We are, we are different because we are made in the, in the image of God. And so God, even though you know, humanity you know, rebels against God. God is not done with humanity. God is you know, continuing to reach out for reconciliation. And he provides for that reconciliation and that potential through the cross. And you go, well, why is it, why is it necessary that then God has to take on human flesh? It's what we call the incarnation. You know, the human, put on human flesh and live among us. And why does he have to go to a Roman cross and pay for our sins there? Well, because again, we go back to God's character. And God is holy. And sin cannot be in his presence. And he's, he actually says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That there has to be a payment for the debt. So that's God's holiness demands that. But yet in his love, God doesn't want us to have to pay it because you know, uh, one person can't really even pay for their own because we're sinful, and that payment would just have to go on and on and on, and can only be one for one. So yes, I mean, you pay for, if you pay for your sins, what does that mean? It means that you are separated from God forever and ever. That's what that means. Because that's, that's God's holiness and justice there. But God gives a way of escape from that. And so in his love, it says... But, God shows us how much he loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, God's not sitting around waiting for you to become perfect. God's not sitting around waiting for you to become and, you know, and, um, like he is. First of all, he'd have to wait forever, and still you wouldn't get there. Because you are sinful. I am sinful. 
we have that human sin nature. Yes, we can talk about environmental influences and, and things of that nature, but you can have the best environment, but you're still prone to be selfish. You're still prone to be sinful, just like I am. And yes, compared to other people, you might be, quote-unquote, a good person. You might be the nicest person on the block. But compared to a holy, perfect God, we're all sinful. We've all fallen short of his glory. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so here we have... At the cross, the full display of God's holiness and his love. We see the justice of God, the love of God, that sin had to be paid for, yet we don't have to be the ones to pay it. So God gets the justice that he demands, yet it's not what we would call fair. Because Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, he takes on our sin. It's not exactly fair because he didn't deserve our sin. We receive his, if we believe in him, we receive his righteousness. His righteousness is put to our account. That's not fair because we certainly don't deserve that. We see the love of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God fully on display for us to provide access through faith to full reconciliation. And Jesus did this willingly, and he did it on our behalf. He wasn't forced to, but he did so because he loved us. So now we get to John chapter 20. So all of this has happened. Jesus has, you know, he has died. He has suffered. He has died. He has paid for our sins um, at the cross. Because of our separation from God, he experiences separation. You know, we talk about God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the triune God from all of eternity past. And all of eternity past, God has been love, and that love has been shared within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet at the cross, because of our separation from God, Jesus willingly experiences that separation. As his sin is, as the sin is put onto him, our sin is put onto him, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in those short hours on the cross, it must have seemed like an eternity. Because what had been united for all of eternity was then separated for our good, for our benefit. And then Jesus, you know, he, he says it is finished. He gives up his spirit. Remember, no one took his life. He gave it up. He still had all the power. He gave up his spirit. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was taken, his body was taken down from the cross and it was put into a tomb. And that tomb was sealed and it was guarded by Roman soldiers. And on John chapter 20, it says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. And saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, 
and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping in and looking, he, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. We'll stop there at verse 10 for a minute and talk about a few things that we we see here. Um, one thing that we see here uh, is that Mary Magdalene gets there first. Um, you know, she's there very early. And we were, we'll come back to her in a minute because her part of the story is not over. So I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to come back to her because she's very crucial um, to, this, to this story. But I want to focus on just for a minute about Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is you know, John, um, who wrote the Gospel of John, and he doesn't, you know, really want to use the term I or, you know, things like that. So he, he, he kind of puts it in a third person. He, you know, he says things about himself, referring to himself, the one whom Jesus loved. Not that he didn't love the others, but he, that's how he understood himself. That was his identity, that he is one that's loved by Jesus. So that's how he understands who he is. Maybe that gives us a clue as how we should view ourselves. Do you view yourself this morning as one who is loved by Jesus? Do you view yourself that way? One who is loved by Jesus. And so he says this story, he's basically kind of saying, you know, we heard from Mary Magdalene about the tomb being empty, and so Peter and I had to go to check it out. And again, he's not saying first person here, but he's basically saying, I was faster, and I got there first. You know, I'm faster than Peter is. You know? So I got there first. But he says, you know, he's there kind of like looking in, and he's kind of cautious and trying to figure things out. And then, you know, Peter, when he gets there, he doesn't he- hesitate. He just you know, blows right in and you know, goes right into the tomb. And as you read the Gospels, you can totally see that. That that is, you know, their personalities. And that's, you know, Peter's personality is whatever he does, he is 100% in. He's 100% in. Right or wrong, for better or worse, he's all in. And so that's what he does. He just charges, you know, right in there. And then John's like, well, I guess I better get in there too. So then he goes in, and they see the, the linens, the wrappings, as a, you know, we have the custom of you know, wrapping the body and putting it into a tomb. But he says, you know, that John says he sees it, it says he believed. That's, a, that's his like real moment of clarity, moment of belief for John. Is that he sees the, the clothes that are there. And it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So here we have a clue that this isn't something um, that was unknown 
that you know that the Messiah would rise from the dead, but it is something that wasn't fully clear to these disciples. Even though Jesus had talked about it, they they didn't really they didn't really get it. And, and there kind of goes with that idea of like you know knowing information to knowing information to knowing to really knowing. And so you know Jesus fulfilled these prophecies now about his resurrection. Now we understand if we look back at the Old Testament and we see the life of Jesus, we see Jesus fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Things that were written hundreds, uh, even thousands of years before he was you know, on the earth that Jesus fulfills these. But now he's specifically talking here, understanding the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so there's a couple of scriptures that we can look at uh, this morning, uh, but I, I want to give another emphasis on this importance because in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, which you know, we studied before, um, he says, Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important, what had been also passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So here are a couple of these prophecies from Psalm 16, 9 through 11. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, or undergo corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. But the emphasis there on you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And so you know, earlier in the psalm, and we also see in Psalm 22, you, know, you, you have the crucifixion of Jesus, you have his death. So with that death becomes you know, putting into the grave, but that it's not permanent. He's not going to stay in the tomb. But that... He will come out. He will not undergo decay. From Isaiah chapter three, 53, and if you read the whole psalm, you can really just see clear that the whole psalm is about Jesus being the Lamb of God, being the one who's going to be the, the ransom, the payment for our sins, and that all of our sin and iniquity, our wickedness was placed upon him. So verses 8 through 12, it says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Now, he was with the wicked because he was crucified between two thieves, but with the rich at his death, because Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, asked for the body of Jesus and places it in a tomb. And it was a sort of tomb that only a wealthier person could afford. And remember, as Jesus lived, as he was a you know, traveling missionary and fully just dependent on the support you know, of others for his, you know, for his food. I mean, and of course, he could create food anytime he wanted to, and we see him do that at times. But... You know, he, he, he put himself in a, in a humble position. We see that from birth through death. He put himself in a humbled position and he allowed others to provide 
for some of those physical needs, but we don't see about, you know, Jesus having, he certainly didn't have a palace. We don't even see about Jesus having a home of his, to call his own. He was not wealthy. But this wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, asked for his body and puts it in this very nice tomb. But with the rich at his death. Now remember, this was written 600 years before Jesus came to the earth and went to the cross. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord, or Yahweh, to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, Notice this, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's powerful. And we see, though, that it says he's going to see the fruit of his labor. And so even there we go to Jesus being the first fruit, the, the first risen from the dead, but he wouldn't be the only. And, and again, we talk about, well, you go, wait a second, weren't other people rose from the dead? I mean, didn't Jesus raise a couple people from the dead? And weren't, didn't even, that happen at other points? Well, yes, but this is different because this is raised, you know, being raised, um, Jesus, as the symbol of the new creation. And that those who follow him are being raised in newness of life. No longer under the curse of sin. One more. From Matthew 12, 38 uh, through 40, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, they answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now remember, at this point, Jesus has already been teaching. He's already been healing. He's been doing, you know, he's already given sign after sign after sign. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so he foretold his own you know, resurrection, but he goes back to Jonah saying, that's, you know, There's a prophecy there, there's something that's being fulfilled there in Jonah. That you remember the story of him rejecting the call of God and being swallowed up by the fish and then being sent to Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh was a people who had utterly rejected God and they were utterly wicked. And Nineveh didn't want to go and share the message of God with them because he knew God's heart. Jonah actually says this that he knows that God is willing to relent and not bring about destruction that the Ninevites so clearly deserved. Because they were so evil and they were so oppressive even to the Israelites and you know, the Hebrews. And Jonah, being a Hebrew, 
wants revenge on the Ninevites. He wants them struck down. And so when he gets that message to go and to tell them about the impending judgment, he's afraid, you know, these people might repent. And God's, you know, the way God is, that when people repent, God forgives them and doesn't, you know, execute his judgment on them. I don't want anything like that to happen. That's Jonah's mindset. And so he's saying, how far away from Nineveh can I get? I'm going to try to get all the way to what we call Spain. He's headed that direction. He's headed as far away as he can go. But God says, nope, Jonah, you're you're the one for this. So you maybe remember the story, the turbulent ocean. Him saying it's his fault, he gets thrown into the... You know, he basically says, throw me into the sea. Sea is calm, but then Jonah is swallowed up. And he's three days, three nights in this, whatever it is, fish, whale, other super creature that God just made for this sole purpose. Because God, I mean, you know, you, you look at people like, well, this is just fanciful. I mean, how could, I mean, nothing like this ever happened. Somebody swallowed up and, you know, fish like that or a whale or whatever. Well, let me ask a question. Is that any more um, is that any more abnormal or unique than even your own existence? Because you could even be a person that says, "I don't believe in God at all. I believe you know that we're, we're here by chance. Well, do you understand how ridiculous that is? Like how ridiculous that chance is? Like how even mathematically speaking, impossible it is. And yet the same people that will believe in a mathematical impossibility will look at you know, anything that has to do with God and the supernatural and God doing something powerful and unique and go, well, that's just, that's just crazy talk. That's just impossible. It's like, okay, well, now that we're all speaking the same language... But here we have it. Jesus saying this is what happened and it was a sign that the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus refers to himself as a Son of Man multiple times because again he's, he's identifying himself with our humanity and that ultimately at the cross he, he represents the human race. So now go back to John, chapter 20, in verse 11. It says, But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid them, laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So here's you know, Mary Magdalene. So it looks like she goes early in the morning, you know, very first thing, empty tomb, got to tell, who am I going to tell? Peter and John? Closest to Jesus, you know, that, that makes sense. Goes and tells them. They, you know, they run. She follows. So Peter and John have already gone. When she comes back, and now she has this encounter where it's the two angels that she sees, and then she turns around, and Jesus is there. And I want, I want to stop just for a moment and just say how before we get into his interaction with her, how incredible this is. Because just as easily, the two angels could have been shown to Peter and John, right? And just as easily, they could have turned around and Jesus had been there. But yet, he doesn't show himself to them yet. And this is very subtle, but this is one of the reasons I believe the Bible to be true. Because in this day and age a woman's testimony would not be accepted in a court of law. If you're trying to build a case for the resurrection of Jesus, legally speaking, in a court of law, this is not how you do it. You don't have a woman be the first one to see him. And especially, as we'll get into it, not this woman. You don't do it this way. If you're trying to make the case in a Jewish court of law or in a Roman court of law 2,000 years ago, you don't make a case for the resurrection this way. But God is more concerned about his agenda, his plan, and the reality of what he's up to. And, And in some ways... He, he's, he does some things, I think, intentional here. Because, because of the fall and how the fall had so skewed things and made things so harmful in our world and made women and children so vulnerable in our world, that Jesus has to, you know, works, and you see it throughout his public ministry, of bringing things back into balance and how things were supposed to be from before sin entered. And so he sows himself to this woman first, a woman who actually, we know from other parts of the Gospels, that she had been demon-possessed. So, now let's look at this either, either way. So you're going to say, either this woman was demon-possessed, that would have been the view of some, of some, right? Like, you know, people who believed in God and believed in spiritual forces and angels and demons and these things. She was demon-possessed. Okay, so that, that woman had gotten herself in a position where she was open to that, and she was possessed, and now, I mean, you know, probably did all sorts of, you know, weird and terrible things. And then Jesus heals her, casts those demons out. Now, so that's if you have the religious perspective. Now, if you don't believe in any of that, you've got, that was the crazy lady. That woman was completely off her rocker. So now, either way you go, you either have demon-possessed or crazy lady as... 
your first witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Again, that's not how you make your case. It's one of the reasons, again, I said I believe it's the real account and not just some people sitting around going, how do we make up a story? How do we make something up that's believable to get people to be, ourselves included, to die for this? To be thrown in prison for this? To be beheaded for this? To also experience crucifixion for this? How do we get people to do this? Well, I got an idea. We'll start the story of the resurrection with the demon-possessed or the insane woman. No, it's not how you do it. So here it is. She sees him, but she doesn't see who she is. I think, you know, perhaps Jesus is is, is hiding a little bit of who he is or his glory from her. But also understand it says she's weeping. You know, when, when your eyes are full of tears, you don't exactly see too well. And again, she's not expecting to, to, for the person who addresses her, woman, why are you weeping, to be Jesus because she thinks he's still dead. That something has just happened to his body. His body has somehow been taken away by the Roman soldiers or someone. Like, what is going on here? Even the angels, having seen the angels, don't convince her that Jesus is risen. She thinks maybe this person, the gardener, had carried him away. Why? Who knows? That's, it, doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have to make sense because when you're in the midst of tragedy, things don't necessarily make sense to you and your thought process. So she's going, why? Have you, you know, or if you have taken him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Whew. Now when he calls her name, she knows. She knows. You see that relationship. When he says her name, she knows. Have you had the thought, have you had the thought that you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, one day Jesus is going to say your name to you? Think about what that would be like. What's her reaction? She says, Rabboni, or teacher. She, you know, she can't really get a sentence out. <laughs> she gets one word, right? But then what does he say to her? Stop, stop clinging to me. <laughs> you know, that, that's her reaction. I mean, she, you could just see her like right around... You know, not his upper body, but like his knees is the picture that I have there in my head at least. Just grabbing hold of him. Clinging to him. And again, gives us you know, the picture of we, uh, that we should have of ourselves with Jesus. Are you, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, are you clinging to him? That's What's appropriate? Clinging to him. 
Because again, as we've looked at John and we look at Mary, we see identity as one who is loved by Jesus. Identity is that Jesus knows your name. That intimate relationship that you're clinging to him. That's what we see here. Verse 19, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Okay. A couple things here that are important. Um, one, it says the disciples, you know, they were together. Zephyr, we'll see in a minute. Thomas isn't there, but they're together. The doors are shut. They were fearful. Said they were, fe- they were in fear of the Jews. Now, this isn't an anti-Semitic statement or anything like that, because remember, it's Jewish people that are in the room. Okay, <laughs> so it has nothing to do with that. It just had to do with the fact that they weren't the ones in power. There were others in power who perhaps could take them away as Jesus had been taken. You know, so they're thinking maybe we're next. Is their mentality. And then Jesus shows up in the middle of them. Okay, so again, he's not bound by the same laws of physics that, you know, that body that he has isn't bound by the same laws and physics that yours and ours are right at this moment. He's just, boom, he's there. And he says, first thing he says to them is, first word is peace, shalom. You know, he says, peace be with you. Jesus enters. He knows that they're going to be scared out of their minds. And so firstly, he says to them is peace. Let me just, he wants to ease things there. And he, he says he showed them his hands and his side. It says the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the, saw the Lord. Certainly appropriate reaction. So he said to them again, peace be with you. Now, now, this is really interesting because we don't have, I mean, there, there's probably other things that happen here, but this is the highlights. These are the keys. And that one of the very first things we have Jesus saying to them is, as the Father has sent me, remember, he's, he, he had been sent and he's accomplished his mission. So he says, as, as I've been sent, I also send you. So right here, we, it's like, Kind of a precursor to the great commission of you know sending them out to all the people groups of the earth, to all the families of the earth again. But that goes all the way back to Abraham and the promise to Abraham that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that's ultimately through Jesus that every family of the earth would be blessed through Jesus. Again, the big picture of God is not just for one people group. It's not just for one ethnicity or for one language or for one socioeconomic bracket. It's a message that's to be freely transmitted to all so that 
All who will believe will believe. But I, th- I thought this was really interesting when he s- it says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now remember, um, in the, la- the Last Supper with his disciples, he promised them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come, the Comforter. You know, and you're always going to have the Holy Spirit you know, with you. He, you know, he-, he gave them that promise, and right here, right after his resurrection, he fulfills that promise. But there's also something else interesting. Remember we mentioned Genesis 2-7 earlier, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So and that's you know, at, the cre- at the creation of, of humanity, right? But then here, right after the resurrection of Jesus, and he's the first among many, he's the first fruits of the new covenant, he breathes onto his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. Is that connection there? Those things are connected. The new creation. It was as Paul tells us, if any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, but all things have become new. A new creation, and that new creation is symbolized by you have the Holy Spirit within you. And just like, uh, you know, with that receiving of the Holy Spirit, you know, when, when Adam, you know, when the, his breath of God was breathed into him and he became a living being, okay, God didn't have to do that with every human then to follow, right? It, you know, we naturally have the Spirit of God just by being connected with, with Adam. And so when, when Jesus does this for them, that doesn't, that's not the same experience you and I have We've also seen in our study of Corinthians that, you know, we're given the Holy Spirit as a seal of our salvation, as a guarantee. So we receive the Holy Spirit when we believe. But here we get that picture of Jesus, you know, Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, who gave it to you? Well, Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to you as a guarantee of your salvation. And we need not to get too confused here in 23 when it says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Um, There's a little bit of a textual issue there. There's also just what we don't want to have a misunderstanding that somehow, you know, God's people have the authority and the right to say, you know, your sins are forgiven and yours aren't like that. It's more of identification, that you, you know who's ours and who's aren't. Um, and especially as we talk about it today, you could, you could argue that the apostles, you know, and they did have certain apostolic you know, power and authority, but for us today, you know, we're not, we're not, we don't forgive sins. God forgives sins. Let me just put it that way. We can identify when sins have been forgiven. And we can identify when sins haven't been forgiven. Because when somebody utterly rejects God, their sins haven't been forgiven. We can state it matter-of-factly. We can state it matter-of-factly when somebody you know, repents and believes in Jesus, yes, that person's sins have been forgiven. But ultimately, we need to remember it's God who forgives sins. Okay, wrapping up here, verse 24, and this is crucial for our ending. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now what's interesting there in the Greek is the other disciples kept on saying to him. It's this continuous saying. Like there, they keep saying, Thomas, we really have seen Jesus. Like he is really raised from the dead. You know, he's heard it from the other you know, disciples. He's heard it you know, from Mary Magdalene and the other women. He's heard it from the two that were on the road to Emmaus that we read about in the book of Luke. Like he's heard about it. But he doesn't believe it. He says, unless I put my hands, unless I touch, unless it's tangible for me, is what Thomas is saying. Twenty six, after eight days, so basically the following Sunday, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach your, here your hand and put it in my side, and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to them, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believed. Just a couple of notes real quick. One note that thought was just kind of interesting was just, the, just this little thought of when the Lord's people are gathered together, you might want to be there because you might miss out on something important, like what happened here. <laughs> you know, Thomas may not have to endure all this if he, you know, he had just been with the other disciples. And it seems like that's what they, where he should have been, uh, you know, with them, united with them. But he was off doing his own thing. And so he misses when Jesus comes the first time. And, and then he has his un, issue of unbelief. And then Jesus comes again and shows him. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And this is really, really powerful. Because again, remember, Thomas, just like the rest of the disciples, they're monotheistic, one God, believing Jews. And so if Jesus isn't God, this is heresy. It's worse than heresy. It's blasphemy. To call someone God who is not God for a monotheist is blasphemy, especially for a Jewish monotheist. And so he says to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus (laughs) receives that. He doesn't rebuke him for what he says. Now you'll notice that whenever you know Paul um, or someone else is you know bowing down, you know to worship, so, you know when Paul is being bowed down too, he says, tells them, "Don't do that. I'm just a man." Whenever in the scriptures someone is being bowed down to, that's not God. That is. Quickly rejected. Quickly rejected. And yet, Jesus receives it. 
And he says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And really, that's where we stand. Because we accept this testimony about Jesus to be true. You know, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, this is where we stand on the other side of Thomas. Because we haven't seen it with our own eyes. We're believing the testimony of others. We're believing that Mary Magdalene told us the truth about what she saw. We believe that Peter and John told us the truth and the other disciples with them that they told us the truth. We believe that Paul, when he was set out to destroy the church and he was having people thrown in prison, that he had a real encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and that changed his life. It transformed him from being a destroyer of the church to one of its greatest builders. In terms of building the church, maybe second only to Jesus himself. So we believe their testimonies are true. And we say, yes, Jesus, we believe in you. But this is given to show us that doubting is pretty normal, especially when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. And so Jesus can handle that. But our encouragement to you this morning, if you're someone who doubts, someone who's unbelieving about the resurrection of Jesus, that you wouldn't stay there, but you would go from unbelieving to believing. Because ultimately, this is the most crucial issue of all, the resurrection of Jesus. Our whole faith hangs in the balance. If it's not true, you, you can send the whole thing out. If it is true, it's worth believing the whole deal and receiving it as your own. The resurrection of Jesus makes our faith an all-or-nothing proposition. And there are many people who want to take the name Christian, they want to be Christian, or they want to be part of Christianity, or whatever it is, Don't not believing in the resurrection. And let's just call that what it is, religion and a game. And it's one not worth playing. It's not worth participating in. It's an all-or-nothing deal when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Notice this verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So one reason is love the book of John. One reason why when somebody is starting to ask questions and starting to search, you know, is, is Jesus really who he says he is? Say, hey, read the Gospel of John. Because it was written for this very purpose to show people, to show people the reality of his life. Faith in Jesus is the ultimate deal. Being part of a church is not going to save you. Being baptized is not going to save you. We hope, plan on having baptisms here later this month. It's, you know, it's a sign of obedience to Jesus and a public profession of, a, of what's already taken place inwardly in one's heart. But it, you know, getting wet isn't going to save you. Doing good deeds isn't going to save you. Being a pretty nice guy or lady 
isn't going to save you. But having Jesus will. Having Jesus will. And so we invite you, even this morning, to go from unbelief to belief in Jesus. If you need more, if you say, well, I've heard about the resurrection, I'm, I'm interested in it, but you know, what if somebody did that? What if, what if people stole his body? What if this is made up or that is made up? We have some more answers for that. We can help you. Just please come and ask for it because we've got more information that we can give you. Because we don't have like a, just a blind, irrational faith. We have faith, but we also believe it's what makes the most sense to believe in at the end of the day. But it still does require faith. You can't take the faith part away. If you don't want to have to have the faith part, well, you can't really have anything to do with Jesus. Because he kind of requires that. He absolutely requires that. And so, that is the key. So this morning, ask yourself, what am I trusting in? And if the answer is anything but Jesus, it's the wrong answer. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is it. But also, you know, you say, yes, I believed in Jesus, but what if I'm a little bit like Thomas after the fact and I start to have my doubts? Again, these things were written so that you would believe and have life in his name. We could say to you that they're written so that you would continue on believing. Keep reading the scriptures. Keep reading the Gospel of John. Keep reading the other Gospels. Keep, keep your eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep going back to the source. There's millions of things written today and a lot of it's garbage. But a lot of that garbage is written by really smart people who can convince you of a lot of things. Go back to the source. Look at the original sources and start reading those again. Drive them home in your heart. Continue in believing that Jesus is our risen Savior, and He is risen indeed. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning we have together to look into your word and just to remember, Jesus, your resurrection. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room and so many more of our family members and our friends would when they think of your name, Jesus, they would think of being loved by you, think of being called by name by you, think of clinging to your feet. They would think of fellowshipping with you. And even now as we participate in that fellowship with you through taking the bread and the cup and remembering you, Jesus, We say that you are risen, that you are risen indeed, and we say, Jesus, please come back. Because we want to see you face to face. We want to worship at your feet. We want the pains of this world to be over with. We want all oppression and injustice to cease. So Jesus... We are hungry for you. 
We love you. We praise you. In your precious name. Amen.